Well, Merry Christmas. I know Jay already uh, said it, but uh, Merry Christmas from Providence, from, from my family to yours. And even just as we sing, if you want to, you go ahead and already start turning your Bibles to Revelation 5. But uh, just a couple things uh, as, as we are singing and as I'm thinking through the words, every year it always surprises me, and I guess it shouldn't, but the theology that is in Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, really is profound. And a couple lines that I think um, probably stick out to me most, we sang the last two songs. But I don't know if you, you, know, you sing these, you know these, and so they maybe don't ring new to the ears. It's a little bit like the new song that we're going to sing in Revelation 5. But this little phrase, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That kind of poetry, that kind of theology that's hidden in what, I think you look at the title and go, what's a little town of Bethlehem? There can't be anything here for me. It's like, no, this is not just for children. It's not just for Christmas. It's, it's really teaching this truth that in a very simplistic, and not simplistic, but in a simple childlike way that hopes and fears, and we all have those categories, and you go, okay, all of the hopes and fears are met in Christ. That expectation, and a lot of Christmas songs are written that way, with an expectation of the coming King. And I just can't help but maybe be struck a little differently this year looking at Revelation, because that expectation really isn't just for the Old Testament saints, but for us as well. We're expecting Him to come again. Another one I love there is, um, let's see, this one. That idea is, far as the curse is found, no more let sins and sorrows grow. You think of the arc of redemption throughout Scripture and that removal that is, we have spiritual salvation. There is a, we are new creatures in Christ, yes, but we long for even as he comes, that curse to be removed fully, which of course is what we're studying here in the future that is to come in Revelation. So um, it's just fun to kind of, I think, be in Revelation at this time of the year. But you can look with me, Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read just the little section we're going to focus on. We're really going to highlight all four and five in many ways and try to pull it together because I do see this as one big section. We, we get transported with John to the throne of God. And we end with the... Four creatures praising, saying amen, and the elders falling down and worshiping. But starting in verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be the blessing, and the honor, and the glory, and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, as we come to you this morning, we do have a desire to see your son lifted up to be 
glorified. How easy it is as we look to your word, no matter where we turn, no matter where we go, we see Christ exalted. And never less than here, where he is the worthy lamb who has slain. So may your spirit just enliven our hearts and enlighten our minds as we strive to see him this morning as he truly is, both the courageous conquering lion and the meek and gentle lamb who is slain and who is worthy. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. I'm sure many of you had a similar morning, depending on your family traditions, as as my family. And you all know I have four boys, and they're at those stages where everything is exciting. And I almost feel bad, because my excitement, I can't match it. I see how excited they are, and I get excited because they're excited. But I'm old enough to kind of go, it's stuff. I have a little bit of a gauge as a dad in the back of my mind. I wonder how long that one's going to last a week, a year, before it breaks. But watching them, and of course, dad's working in one sense this morning. He's rolling around scripture in his mind. And I couldn't help but think, well, the difference between me and between them, besides a few years, is they deemed what they unwrapped this morning as worthy. Worthy of ecstatic joy. Worthy of excitement. Worthy of to say, this is the best Christmas ever. And dad, being a little grown and a little older, goes, uh, I'm just, there are probably some more exciting things. I might even be more excited about the prime rib this afternoon <laughs> than, you know, the, the toys and things. But it's because I don't find it as compelling, as worthy. I couldn't help but think, what we find worthy, we give love, attention, time, money, energy, effort. Because we go, that is worth it. I could list a handful of hobbies in my life. And I know some of you would go, the time that Josh spends thinking about that hobby, watching YouTube videos, and spending time doing that, some of you will go, that's a good use of time. But most of you would probably go, that doesn't sound interesting at all. Because you wouldn't deem it worthy of your time and your energy. You think of us as human beings with emotions. You go, do you find things worthy? Worthy of your love, your compassion. Think, is something worthy of you being invested in? Even to the point where it brings out tears because it's something of worth to you. It's this whole idea of is it valuable that is drawn out here throughout chapters 4 and chapter 5. Last night we looked at Christ as the, the humble king and he is and it is not forgotten his incarnation here in chapter 5 in fact is lifted high that he is the slain lamb who is worthy to receive the scroll as we saw last week. 
but this movement from a manger to a throne room of this realization that what has been longed for, hoped for, is finally coming to pass. You see that here in our text. Old Testament prophecy. We're in Isaiah, as I have mentioned in uh, Sunday mornings over the course of this study in Revelation. And, and it's one of those interesting things where you see promises and you sometimes go, well, that seems to find fulfillment in the first advent, the first coming of Christ, Christmas. But there's lots of times, especially in Isaiah, there's lots of times you're going, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Or that hasn't happened yet. And it has to do with the second advent, his second coming. And I can't help but think as we're expecting and singing songs where they reflect an Old Testament expectation of the coming Messiah and the things that came in his first advent and through his life and his death and his resurrection. That we shouldn't be more expectant for his second coming. Reading Luke 2 this week, thinking of Simeon, who is long expectantly awaiting the Messiah, who praises God in chapter 2 of Luke, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people, Israel. He's just longing to see the Messiah, and he sees, gets a glimpse of a boy, and he understands, God reveals to him, this is the one you have waited for. And because you and I are removed, we're not walking the earth with a visible Christ. I think we get lulled into not expecting him the way we should. Interesting fact, as you look at Revelation, you think of prophecy. This is a prophecy. That's what he says, right? It's, it's in an epistle form, but it's a prophetic book. One-fifth of your Bible is prophetic. There's 650 general prophecies, over half of which concern Jesus, that is the Messiah. And it's interesting that out of 330, so a little more than half of those 650, 225 refer to his second coming. That is to say, more than half, two-thirds, of those prophecies have to do not with the first coming, but with the second coming. And over 50 times, we've seen it multiple times here in Revelation, we are called to get ready, be ready for his return. Makes me, and again, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Whatever you're studying is, is typically the answer for me. So maybe I'm a little biased, and I don't want to say Revelation's better than Matthew, or Matthew's better than Mark, or something to that effect. But it is to say, so often Revelation is put aside. There's, there's no holiday for the second coming. There, there, there's, there's no kind of on the calendar where the birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ on Easter. And it seems like, I'm not saying it's greater, but it's at least of equal value. It's of equal importance because all of Scripture is important, but that we look at the second coming, and you can't help but go, the waiting of the Scripture is saying what you need right now. Yes, you need to remember his incarnation at Christmas. Yes, you need to remember his resurrection really every Lord's Day when he was raised on Sunday morning. But that kind of pressure, what we need, the church needs, where that hits over and over is you need to remember he's coming Again, that'll give you hope. And we saw that in the churches 
the things they were struggling with, the things they were commended for, and the things they were condemned for, it all came back to, remember, he's coming. Overcome, remain, be steadfast. So his second coming, in some ways, you could say, for the church is more important. So let's return here to chapter 4 of Revelation and let's go back to the throne room of God. And remember in chapter 4 he says, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. That's an important verse for our section because it orients us. It tells us, Where we've been, which is we have been in the things that are, chapter 1. The things that are, which is the churches that existed in the first century. There's a prophetic nature to them, yes. But we're into the things that will be into the future. And so John is transported, and we're transported there with him to this future moment where they're all going to look for, is this the time? Because this event has to take place before the judgment comes and the day of the Lord is ushered in and the judgments in Revelation 6 and forward happen. And we've seen really what is highlighted over not just chapter 4, not just chapter 5, but over the whole is this whole concept that we've really seen three weeks in a row that the Lord is worthy, worthy to judge, worthy to redeem, and therefore he is worthy of worship And how do we discern worth? We'll think about that a little bit later, but how do we discern worth? We discern worth in comparative things. Some of you might collect every penny. You see a penny, pick it up. You see a quarter, pick it up. Others, you might not value it. We we make those decisions relative. Is there anything close? Anything relative to the to the worth of Christ. And then, of course, we would say absolutely not. But yet, the question becomes, does our life reflect that? But here in chapter 4, we're, we're ushered into the throne. And you see, I want to highlight the, the first song. Starting there in verse 8. They're not necessarily singing, it would say. But um, verse 11, you see them saying, and in verse 9, them saying the Four living creatures, we understood them as the seraphim, as described. And they're saying in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is to come. And similar to what we'll see in chapter 5, what do they give him? They give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. This is about who's on the throne. And in this imagery, who's on the throne? It's God the Father, and and he is worthy of glory, honor, blessing, might, glory, as well. As we'll see, Christ is. And so because the Father on the throne is worthy, what are the 24 elders? We understood them to be the church. Believers there will fall down before him. Kind of a theme in this two chapters. 
who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And so the vivid imagery is of a Imagine a picture, a a camera that is focused on the throne, the one sitting on the throne that is God the Father. And the movement, if you say, what's the difference between four and five? It's a movement from the Father to the Son. And what we see is true of the Father is true of the Son. It's a great place to look and say, does the Bible view Christ as perfectly and fully God? Absolutely. Only one is worthy of worship, and that is God, but in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they sing there because of his creative power, and he has made the world. And so we're moved in the end of four, two, from creation all the way to what is going to be, in essence, some call uncreation, the judgments that will come here, where the world, ultimately, there's going to be a new creation, And that movement begins in chapter 5, which we saw last week. And we highlighted these reasons that Jesus is worthy. I want to kind of cover them just briefly. You know, we looked at them last week, but cover them again. Because really, what we see this morning is just an added fourth reason. And the first of those four, because of who he is, we saw in verses 5 through 7. Because of who he is. That he is the lion of Judah. He is the courageous, the kingly lion. That's what he sees, verse 5. When the picture here of they cannot, as they look all over the earth, all over every living creature, they can't find someone worthy to take this scroll, to break the seals. If you remember last week, it wasn't an issue of strength. I listened to a friend's sermon And I thought it was kind of funny because he was preaching on this passage. And um, he said it wasn't an issue of opposable thumbs. That's not the challenge here. The challenge isn't can someone have the strength. Anyone can break the scroll in one sense. The question is who has the right to break the scroll? Who can boldly approach the throne and take that scroll that has those seven seals and start to break them one by one? And begin this process by which what was broken in Genesis 3 is made new again. Who can do that? And so John is thinking there's no one. And so he's crying. And the elders say to him in verse 5, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome as to open the scroll and the seven seals. And then it changes. John, I think it would seem, is, is looking and looking and looking around. He's looking for that lion, that root of David who has overcome. The one who is from David, but also David is from him. He is David's Lord. And he looks and what he sees is he doesn't see the lion. What he sees is a lamb standing As if slain. That is, it would seem pierced with mortal wounds. This lamb picture, of course, this is Christ who has those wounds from 
the cross, having these seven horns, these seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the idea of perfection, perfect strength, omniscience, omnipotent, the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. And what is he able to do? He's able to do what no one else is able to do, which is he is able to take the scroll out of the right hand of the Father who is stretched out. He is the one who is found worthy. No one else has the ability. No one else has the right to open that scroll. There's a way in which you see that emphasis on his right, both as the one from the line of Judah and the root of David, but also the right as the one who was perfectly obedient to the Father. He's worthy of worship because he has taken that because of who he is. We looked at because of where he is and where he is here is he is before the throne. The seraphim, we notice that there are six angels, the, the two that cover their eyes, the two that cover their feet, and the two that allow them to hover. They have to cover their eyes. But this lamb who is slain boldly approaches the throne. He is able. Why? Because of who he is, because of what he has done. And that is why he is worthy of worship now, because of where he is before the exalted throne in heaven. It's no longer humble in that same way. It's not to say Christ is no longer humble. By that I mean the quality of meekness, the quality of being gentle. But it is to say no one is going to make the same mistake they made in his first coming as they'll not make that mistake in his second coming. You'll see where he is from. You'll see him for who he truly is. And you will say that is the one who is worthy, who is able to do what no one else can to reach up at the throne and grab this scroll. And thirdly, we saw that because of what he does, he is worthy. Because what he does is what only he can do. That scroll, we kind of looked at uh, Roman documents, titles, deeds, uh, marriage certificates. It's very common. They would roll a scroll up and they would seal it. And then on the outside, they would write a summary of its contents. He is able to unroll it because he has the right to the deed, right to the title. To what? He has the right to all of creation, to the whole universe, the, the title of the universe. And he is able to receive it. And he is now going to be the one who not only undoes the curse as far as the curse is found in individuals' lives in the church, but in all of creation. Because it's not just you and I as made in the image and the likeness of God who groan and, and who weep and who long for a broken world to be fixed, but even all creation, Scripture says, groans. And he is worthy. See that verses 7 through 10. He is worthy to, to take the scroll and he's able to take it. He's going to be able to be the one who breaks it. Breaks the seal after seal after seal to set the course of events where it will culminate in a new heavens and a new earth. 
And so, of course, because of that, verse 8, they all fall down before the Lamb. They have harps, golden bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. They're there. They are praying. They are singing. And in verse 9, this is the first song, and then we're going to look at the final second song. But the first one is noted as a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you made them be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. And so it looks back at what Christ did in his incarnation. He is worthy because he was slain. And that sacrifice purchased by his blood a people. It's a new song. Well, I don't think of new here as because something old and worn out. It's not as if I think they are tired of singing the creation song in chapter 4, verse 11. But it would seem that this is new in that, and this is kind of interesting, new in the sense that they have not had this event. It's new in the sense that it's something that has not been seen. There are many of those things. For for many of us, we live by the Solomon's adage. There's nothing new under the sun. Some of us think probably quite arrogantly, I've I've seen it all, right? This moment in heaven, the angels, the 24 elders, are singing a new song because this is the moment where they've been waiting, looking forward to, that the beginning of the Messiah, taking back what is his from Genesis 3, the usurper, that is Satan, who is— This is not the earth, right? Um, There's a sense in which, under God's sovereign rule, this is where Satan is known as the prince. The slain lamb is going to take this back fully and rightfully here at this moment. And those things are going to be to unroll like the scroll in the coming chapters. They're going to sing to Yahweh a new song like Isaiah 42, 9, that behold the Former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth, and I will cause you to hear them sing Yahweh a new song. I see Christmas. I've seen it before, right? And hence, I don't see it through the eyes of a child. Take me to the ocean. I've seen it. Take someone who's never seen the ocean and they are saying, this is new. See, as far as the eye can see, it always humored me being from Nebraska and living in Southern California that I could never get my Southern Californian friends to the ocean, ever. I'm thinking, you gotta go. It's the ocean. And they're like, ah, I grew up going. We used to always go to that beach. When was the last time you were there? Uh, maybe five years. It's like, what? You're 30 minutes away. Have you been on the 405? Have you seen the traffic? It's not worth it to them anymore. But again, this is something that is not just going to be worth it in the moment because it's new, but worthy because of what he has done for all eternity. It's of infinite value. Therefore, it is worthy of infinite worship. 
And lastly, our focus, we want to build on this, is this reality in verses 11 through 14, that he is worthy because of what he has, because of what he has. And what he has is what only he deserves, which is worship, which is honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, glory, blessing. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, which is, I don't think you need to know Greek for this, is a saying of, it's incalculable. As many little grains of sand on the shore. It's not meant for you to go count every grain of sand. He's just saying what John sees is you can't number it. That's how big. And particularly verse 12, that's how loud. They say with one loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and blessing. What is worship worth? Well, you think of what Israel was commanded to do. What we are commanded to do, to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is everything. And worthy is the Lamb to receive, to have everything. We're going to highlight this a little bit, the way the text highlights it. But he could have kept going. And, 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 and. But let's think about these words as they're written just a little bit. That he receives power, authority, control. Ownership, particularly the lamb that was slain, the one, and you see the irony, right? The one who ultimately is hung disgracefully, shamefully on the cross. He's given power. He's given authority and control, particularly with what's happening here, right? This scroll being given that he has the authority to control it. But he also is described as one who is worthy to receive riches. That is, everything of value that has ever been. Not just the idea of monetary, but of everything. We're going to do a little bit of work here. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. I don't have anything on the screen. I just want to hear the rustling of the pages. Just. But Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, speaking of humility, that's, that's a pretty humble thing to say. I don't know if I had viewed Paul as the least, but that's how I viewed himself. This grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light all that is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. The riches in Christ, myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands. It's unfathomable. This is unlike anything you can imagine. It seems like every few weeks, especially now, whenever, you know, just right there sitting at the top of every news scroll, every few months is, you know, the lottery, the whatever, whatever the big jackpot is called, Powerball, uh, 
is up there, right? Billions, not just millions, billions of dollars. And there's always some associated stories of all the people who've won the lottery and ran out of money. And most of us sit here and go, that would be hard to do. But they find a way. Despite how, many, how much you have, you can lose it. That's to say our riches, even in this life, to someone we'd say, wow, you won millions or billions of dollars. How could you ever lose it? Well, that's because we don't have riches that are unfathomable. God is never going to write the check that bounces. He's never going to be one who ever runs dry. It's not that he can't give you and give someone else riches because it's unfathomable. It's never going to run dry. He goes on to talk even wisdom in this passage that verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might be known. And if you flip over to Colossians chapter 2, the same language here of the riches and the wisdom, again, all these words blending together. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul wanting them to understand, he says, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face in the flesh, so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, all wisdom, all knowledge. And so in this context for the church at Colossae, hey, stop looking to the world for advice. Stop looking to them for wisdom and start looking to the worthy one that is Christ. His strength will never cease. Go to First Peter chapter 1. Strength, power. The redemption that we have is not just in something that we think is tangible of riches, but rather the blood of Christ, the strength to redeem. Knowing that, he says, chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Peter, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of, the, of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. That same lamb that John sees before the throne. He is deserving of all honor and glory. One last, John chapter 5. You see here this connection between the Father and the Son, which we see connected between chapter 4 Chapter 5 of Revelation, John chapter 5, verse 20, and it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, just so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The reminder there of honoring the Father means you honor the Son. Authority has been given to him. It's under his name. And there's no other name under heaven and earth of which salvation is found. It's this slain lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. You think of that idea of blessing. Simply bestowing divine favor. How does that work when you bless God? Well, there's no one more worthy. Think of the Gospels. This is my son, the Father says, in whom I am well pleased. And he will be pleased with him forever. And so verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and earth, there's not one dissenting chord in this symphony. Everyone sings together. Everyone comes with one loud voice in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. And I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, so to the Father and to the Son, be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Seems to be a resounding, we're not, I don't think, any particular reason. Maybe it's just the Nebraskans in us, but we're not the big amen crowd, but I've been around the big amen crowd where everything I say is amen, amen. The four living creatures are there saying amen, amen. May it be so, may it be so, may it be so. And the elders there, the 24 elders, thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads, that is, the church bows down, falls down, just like John falls down, and they worship so you see the connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5. You begin at the throne, you begin at the Father, and you move to the worthy Lamb. And you end here, before we look to the Lamb to break the first seal, to him who sits on the throne, chapter 4, and to the Lamb, chapter 5. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Think about the world that we live in. The world that you and I live in, has always been this way. Maybe it's a little different with technology, but it's always been a world that fights for affection. That is, it fights for you to love things, desire things, to buy things, to want things. I don't think I need to belabor the point. It's December 25th. There's been a few people fighting for your attention over the last few months, fighting for my kids' attentions, their loves. There's a lot there's a lot of unworthy things in this world. I think of the celebrity culture that, that we see. I mean, is anyone worth 10 million views? I'm always, I'm mind blown. I mean, I just see my friends who aren't even, you know, that well known. You know, we're all little fishes in maybe different sized ponds. But I'll see even a, a buddy and someone has... 15,000, 20,000 views, and you're going, I mean, you think about that. Hey, maybe they're all robots. I don't know. But it would seem, if it's half true, that's a lot of people, more people than are in the city of Gretna looking at things. The, the high-profile ones getting millions of views. 
More people looked at what they said than live in Omaha and Council Bluffs. And you ask the question, why are they famous? Are they worthy of attention? Are they worthy of listening to? Are they wise? I'm not sure anyone is worthy of that kind of attention. Any single person that is like one of us. But here you find one in chapter 5 who is worthy of that and all the more. He is worthy of every single. We're not talking millions. We're not talking billions. We're talking of all creatures and all creation. All that who have lived. Everyone bowing the knee because he is worthy. You just see our nature is one to which we want to worship. We're looking to give our time to something, to someone, to some cause. Although I'm all for things that you go, okay, this is worth my time. I just want to encourage you to evaluate it in light of chapter 5. And with Christ being what is most worthy. Are you worshiping things that are truly worthy? Or is your love, your worship divided? If it is, ask the Lord to say, Lord, give me wisdom to spend time, to spend energy on the things that matter most, that are worthy, and ultimately have it all aimed towards the one who is worthy, living your life for Christ. Knowing that God is generous, that he gives to those who ask. He gives to those who ask with generosity. And as James says, without reproach. So as you look at today and you, you find things that are worth something, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for gathering. Just remember who is most worthy of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have spent to look to your Son, to see that he is worthy over all created things, that he is the one who has the right to the keys to this whole universe. And that a day is coming where he receives that title, where he takes back what has rightfully always been him, and he throws down the usurper. Encourage us as we are continually over the coming months lifted up into this glorious future, knowing that you desire your people to understand what is to come, that it might impact the things that are now. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.